0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at DeRoshi-Meyer.org
1: Today's question. Part two of our discussion on creationism. And we noted last week most of last week, was focused on Bethlehem's elder affirmation of faith, trying to gain clarity about what it says and what it doesn't say. And we noted that the elder affirmation of faith affirms God as creator over all things. There are no other options. And the elder affirmation of faith is also explicit that it does not it will not allow its leaders to affirm any thought of the evolution of humanity. From the perspective of our elder affirmation, that's out of bounds. But it does not make a statement regarding whether it's out of bounds with respect to Christianity. And the fact that we engage and embrace a number of folk, like Tim Keller, who is a Evolutionary creationist. Suggests that, that at least as a whole, the elders haven't said that's heresy. But we have said none of our leaders are going to hold to that model. But we do have leaders who are both old earth and young earth creationists. So with that in mind, I had to rework my question. And this is the question that I'm answering. Why do you Jason hold to young earth creationism believing that God created a mature earth in 6 24-hour periods in a literal week and that the earth is extremely young 6000 to 10000 years old? Why is that your perspective? And it's it's my hope here today to answer the 6 24-hour day period from Scripture, why I hold to this and respond to a number of other questions and then next week and probably the following week and that'll be the end of it, Lord willing, I'm going to address the age of the earth question and argue from the whole of Scripture why I believe the Bible teaches the earth is young. But we're addressing here Deroshi's perspective, not Bethlehem's perspective. Bethlehem's elder affirmation is much broader than this and so my statements are going are simply. I mean, the question was asked to me, so I get to answer it to you, and and then you can also raise questions. And so here's here's my view. The question was here. Here's my view. Roughly six to ten thousand Earth years ago, God created the universe and all life in six successive natural days, marked by evenings and mornings, and the pattern set forth in Genesis one. So, if you will, open up your Bibles to. Genesis 1, I noted last week that in my own Old Testament surveys throughout the year, years, this has not been a topic that I address in the classroom because it is not the focus of Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is a sermon designed to clarify for the people who God is, who they are in God's world. The focus is not the question of science, but that does not mean that Genesis 1 doesn't have anything to say about how God did it in the beginning. Indeed, I think that it does. So, let's just walk through this text. We begin here at the beginning. We started this. I'm just going to walk through the week as it's laid out for us in Scripture quickly. I noted... Two different parts that verse 2, I think, is a signal. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And then the rest of the week takes what was formless and gives it form. Takes that which is uninhabitable and makes it habitable. In days 1 through 3, and then in days 4 through 6, we have that which is void, empty, filled up. That which is inhabited, now... Sorry, uninhabited, becoming inhabited. We have the spheres, and then we have the, king, the kingdoms, and then we have the kings, the rulers of those spheres, placed in it. Day one, God creates light. I'm only getting the created verb from the beginning. It's the overarching verb. God created the heavens and the earth, but as you... Note in verse 3, all it says is, let there be light, and it was so. With every other one of the seven actions, there's eight total things that God does in six days, with, every, with all the other seven, there's an explicit statement, God made something, God made something, God made something. Whereas with light, just let there be, and it was. I'll make a note on why that may be significant, A little bit later. God creates light. God separates light and dark, day and night. And there was evening, morning, day one. Day two. We see God creating what in the ESV is called the expanse. This is not the earth's atmosphere alone because we're going to see in day four that the luminaries are actually placed into the expanse. So the expanse includes the earth's atmosphere plus all of outer space, as we understand it. And according to Psalm 145, this is part of the heavens, but also included among the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, also included among the heavens, are the angels. Now, Psalm 145, Psalm 140... Ah, uh, Which Psalm is it? Psalm 148. Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him from the heights. And then it says, Praise Him all His angels, all His hosts, the sun, moon, stars. All that's part of the heavens. And then it says, Praise Him from the earth, you great sea creatures, you deeps, fire, hail, snow, mist, mountains, hills, fruit trees, beasts, livestock, flying birds. All that's part of the sphere of the earth. So the heavens... And the earth, that's what God creates at the beginning. And here, what we get is the creation of the expanse, and and it specifically, it appears, focused on the initial realm that is a picture of the ultimate realm, atmosphere and outer space. And God separates waters above from waters below. And in between the waters below that will become the seas of the planet... And the waters above, which are beyond our reach, in between it is the expanse. And that includes all of the atmosphere and all of outer space. There's something beyond this, and it's the realm of God. That's how it's portrayed. Day three. Here's where you get the first of two acts in a single day. God creates land... That is, the, the dry land appears, it reaches out, it pushes up, and then all of a sudden the waters recede on each side, and we have continents that are shaped. There are mountains and hills that are visible, and they're standing in distinction from the lakes. God separates the lands and the land and the seas. and then on this dry land, all of a sudden, He... Sets up vegetation. It specifically says the vegetation is of two kinds that he plants on the third day. Plants yielding seed, that is, grain plants, and fruit trees. Apples, oranges, etc. Fruit trees and the... Wheat and rice and rye and barley. That's day three. Now the formlessness has taken shape. There is a, a sphere in which things can thrive and live. And then in days four through six, the void becomes filled. Day four, God creates luminaries for the heavens, two greater lights and the stars. The fact that it's not called the sun, I think, is intentional because the same Hebrew word for sun is the, the cognate is the word for the Egyptian sun god. Shemesh Shamash. And so I think Israel's coming out of Egypt. God's not even going to let them think that the luminaries are identified with the gods. No, God defeated all those so-called gods with ten plagues. One, two, three, four, all the way up to ten. He showed that God, Yahweh, is the one who controls all nature. He places the luminaries in the sky and He delegates them with a purpose. It's in this section of the week that we get purposes assigned to what He makes. He sets them up for signs and to rule over day and night, to separate light from darkness and day from night, and to distinguish seasons, days, and years. Day five. If in day two, so in day one, Light, day four, luminaries. Which from our perspective are the very means by which we gain the light. Yet, they're not supreme. Even the sun is dependent on the very word of our God. And I'll make a note on that because I think that helps answer something. How there could be day and night without a central light. A physical light, as we know of as the sun. There was light. God cr- then, day two, the expanse is created. And it's separated the waters below from the waters above and the expanse is there, and now placed into them are the sea creatures on the earth and the birds that are going to fly through that expanse. God delegates them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the seas and the land. And then day six, just like in day three, there were two activities. Day six has two activities of God. He creates land creatures, and then he creates mankind. Day three had the land appearing. Vegetation came. Day six now fills that sphere with its creature kings. Land creatures are delegated to fill the land. God tells them to do that, and then mankind is commissioned to fill the land and rule over the very creatures that He has made in the sea, the sky, and the land. And then we have God's sovereign rest. Not a rest of laziness. He wasn't weary. There's nothing in the text that suggests that. Rather, we have God now seated over His earthly kingdom, and all is well. He's not having to be in battle. He has established his kingdom. He's able to sit on his throne, and everything's at peace with him, and he's at peace with it. That's what Sabbath is, and the fall twists it. It does not thwart God's ultimate sovereignty, but it does thwart the peace of his earthly kingdom. Humanity is no longer at peace with its creator. Indeed, they're trying to take the throne. And so, uh, salvation history becomes a quest to see the peace and the reign of God reestablished on a global scale. And God's going to give the Sabbath, and we're going to talk about this on a different question, He's going to give the Sabbath to Israel as the sign of their covenant so that they are living six days plus one. Six days plus one. As a goal to remind them that through them the world is to be blessed. Through them... Sabbath is to be realized again on a global scale. Israel is the instrument through which the reign of God will be realized north, south, east, and west. And Israel is represented by a king through whom that rest comes. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sure. And so what I'm proposing is that there was... Um, in the process of God's creating, everything starts in verse 2. There's a process of His creating. Before He says, let there be light, He had already begun to create. But all that's part of day one. And He began to create, and there was a um, a mixing of elements so that you could not distinguish water from water land light from dark it, it was a it was a convoluted mess that he then built upon in the remaining parts of the week but he started with the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the, over the waters that's that's how day 1 began so here's my i'm going to give just the two basic, three basic reasons why I, I'm a young earther, and then I'm going to open it up to respond to questions that you have, not a young earther, sorry, my three basic reasons why I'm a, on a positive side, why I think the Bible teaches these 24-hour days. It's just just very simple. And then, all these but, 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 but questions will rise, and then we'll address them. And if I can legitimately address every one of them, then it provides a foundation upon which to build and assess the age of the earth, which we'll go to next week. So here's here's just the basics. There is day and week imagery in Genesis 1. There are seven days... And one week. You have the one week structure. So there's day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, the sixth day. And on the seventh day, God rested. That structure is just clear. It's right there in the text. Number two, the mention of light and darkness, day and night. Look at verse five. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning. There's, there's daytime and there's night time. We understand that. Talk to anybody. That puts what we're talking about in a certain category of understanding. There's day and night, light and dark. That's our lives. The use of day with the f- refrain, specifically, so it's it's day one. He calls the... the the light time day, he calls the dark time night, but then he's able to step back and use the term day in a different way. He's able to say that day one, day two, day three. The use of day along with evening and morning calls us, I believe, to read this as what we would envision as a 24-hour Solar day. This is how we would think about it. It's, it's just how it's presented in the text. It's not presented in a different way. This is how it's given to us. Then we have how the rest of the Bible uses the language. Even before God reveals himself at Sinai, even before they arrive at Sinai in Exodus 16, they've just left Egypt God clarifies for them, now remember, you're supposed to be keeping the Sabbath. This isn't a special... Remember, nobody was there to watch this happen. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. At least the first five and a half days. Nobody was there. So that means it had to have come by special revelation. And the question is, To whom and when? My point is simply this, that there is something, even before they arrive at Sinai, this is already part of their lives. They already are aware of a pattern. And the question is, where did they get the pattern from? But note this, a solar day, think about a day and a solar day, that is a day as we understand it, understood only in relation to the sun. The rotation of the earth. Oh, 24 hours went by. Now I see the sun exactly as I did 24 hours ago. A lunar month. The month is something that is grounded in nature. The month, I mean, the moon revolves in a certain way, in relation to the earth, while it's doing its own rotation, in a pattern that can be set. But it's set by nature. The day is set by nature. The month is set by nature. The year is set by nature. That's how God establishes it. The sun standing in a fixed position. The earth re- revolves around this sun In 365 plus days, it's set by nature. The week is not set by anything in nature. So where did it come from? What made Israel keep this pattern? Now we don't have any clue until we get to Exodus 20. But as I said, before Exodus 20, before the Ten Commandments, Israel is already keeping this pattern. But here's what we read. God calls Israel to keep the Sabbath cycle because His creation of the universe followed this structure. The seventh day, six days plus one. The seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Why? Because in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and He rested on the seventh day. So... You live out your lives, Israel, in accordance with God's pattern as it was set forth at the beginning. This isn't special revelation right now. This is something they've understood because they've been keeping the Sabbath before they ever arrive at Sinai. What I'm proposing is that the original week is not figurative. If it was figurative, just an analogy created in space and time, but having no direct connection with reality, then I don't think we would have an analogy that would be as effective. If God indeed created in six days and rested on the seventh, then Israel gained a solid pattern around which to base their lives. Now, there are a number of other arguments that can be made, but the, the basic one is just this. The 24-hour mature earth view is the most natural reading of the text. Now, holding that view raises lots of questions, and I wonder what questions come to your mind. And I don't think I'm going to be able to get through all the questions today, but you can go find my responses in the PowerPoints, but I'll let you now raise your questions. <laughs> can all this happen on on day six? Let's just... Okay, so here's how I'm going to do it. I've, I've got a super, super long PowerPoint, but I have my PowerPoint slide thing. So let's see. This is question eight, or question E. Could so much really happen on day six? And let's just see. Here's, here's what I want. So I, this is how I want to handle this. I'm just going to try this out. Could so much really happen on day six? That's the question that's been raised. Okay, so what has to happen? Day 6 includes all that happens in Genesis 1, 26 through 30, and all that happens in Genesis 2, 4 through 25. So what does that mean? has to fit in a single day. God creates the animals. God creates the man. God tells the man the parameters for life. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of life is also right there implying that they can eat it. Uh, And I've commissioned you to guard the garden and to serve the garden. That's what I want you to do, Adam, man. Man has to name all the animals. And God creates the woman, and then the man and the woman get married in one day. Is that too strange to think possible? Let me make a couple notes. Number one. When it says, God made the animals according to their kinds, I don't think we should necessarily connect kinds to our understanding of species. Kinds could be a much broader category. Regardless, we come to Genesis chapter 2... And what it says is, verse 19, Out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and He brought them to the man to see what He would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Now this is before Eve is made, and Genesis 1 tells us that Adam and Eve were made on day 6. So Adam has to name the animals. But that doesn't mean he has to get down and... Distinguish Boxer from Doberman. Also. I borrowed this from my friend Joe. Who's also a young earth creationist. He's. Another professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary. And I noted last week. How we have professors that are on different camps. Some are old earth creationists. Some are young earth creationists. But here's an adapted version of Joe's proposal. Could it all have happened in one day? 6 a.m., God makes the animals. (laughs) Just stick with me here, okay? 6 a.m., God makes the animals. 6.01, God takes counsel with himself. Hmm, let us make man in our image. 6.02, God makes Adam from the dust of the ground. Out of the ground, God formed the man... And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he becomes a living creature. 605: God starts to plant the garden. The Lord planted the garden in the east, and there He put the man that he had formed. 6:10: the garden is complete. I mean, we're talking about God here. He can, he can plant quickly. 6:11: God puts Adam in the garden. Adam was created outside the garden and put into the garden just as Israel was created outside the garden and put into the promised land and there's a parallel between the garden of eden and the promised land. And Adam gets kicked out of the garden and Israel gets kicked out of the promised land and both are pictures of future paradise. And it's Jesus alone who carries us back in to the garden. Let him who Oh, to, to him who overcomes, I will give him the right to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2 7. 6 12, God warns Adam, don't eat the forbidden tree. He just put him in the garden. Why not? Okay, I've, I've picked you off, i planted you here. Now, look around you. Don't eat from that tree. One minute later, Adam has breakfast. <laughs> We have to allow for such things. 6:30. I mean, I gave him 18 minutes, okay? 17 minutes, which is more time than I take in the morning to eat my breakfast. 6:30. God reveals his plans for a helper. Then the Lord God said, "It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him." 6:31. God brings the animals to Adam to name the beasts of the field, every bird of the heavens, brought to the man to see what he would call them. Now, this is quite a job, but he keeps working, and he gets done at three. He's working on it for for how many hours? For eight and a half hours? That's, that's a good amount of time. And then he's weary, and he goes and takes a nap. I give him 25 minutes for his nap. It's just a... a quick one he just said his fitbit and uh, or his jawbone yeah and then god wakes him up and all of a sudden while he's been sleeping god's been at work because we have a god who never sleeps and never slumbers and he's been at work and he creates a girl out of his rib and he sees her whoa man and <laughs> he meets her and the two get married How many weddings have you been in that have been four minutes long? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's telling God, she shall be called woman. I will love her like my own body. Therefore, the two, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And the two shall be one flesh. They get married. Then God blesses Adam and Eve with a commission at 329. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. That's what it says in Genesis 1. God said to the man and the woman, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Three thirty, two hours until sunset to be naked and unashamed. That's it. Could it have happened in a day? Yes. I think so. Next question. Good question. I went and scoured Pritchard's Ancient Near Eastern Text this week. It's a big book about this fat that's loaded with ancient texts related to the Old Testament. And at least in translation, I could not find any example of a week. I could only find seven-day patterns which were highly common. So I couldn't find any ancient or eastern data in that volume for the figure of the week. Which may be significant. Okay, so this would be question question B. Couldn't day just mean an indefinite amount of time like it does in Genesis 2-4? So let's look there. Let me me just, before I do that, I'm going to add question letter A in. And we'll start here. Letter A is this. Can we really have a day and a night without the sun? This will lead us into the day question that was just raised. So how could we have the first three days without the actual sun present to make days? That's a reasonable question. But it's not one that the Bible doesn't, I think, address. First off, let's be clear, what's at stake behind the question is a doctrine of uniformitarianism, if we call it a doctrine. It's the prescribed principle held by scientists that things have always happened the way they are happening now. Now, there are natural elements that thwart uh, uniformitarianism. And that is miracles and catastrophe, both of which are very apparent throughout Scripture. You can't judge. Well, we do have some judgments. When Christ turned the water into wine, the judgment was, this is the best stuff. It had an appearance of age, but it wasn't old at all. When Jesus created Adam, no one thinks that He started out As an embryo. Rather, we we affirm he was created as a man. Uniformitarianism is driving this issue. Well, how could there be day, even vegetation, living without a sun? And note, here's what's at stake. To have day and night, all you need is not the sun, but a fixed light. The sun is not needed for day and night. What is needed is a fixed light and a rotating earth. Now, in the new heavens and the new earth, night will be no more. Why? Because the Lamb and the Father will be the light. There will be no more shadow. So we have... At the end, a picture of no night. Why? Because there is a source of light that is unending and unmediated. Not only that, John opens his gospel by echoing Genesis 1. And when he thinks of Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the same was in the beginning with God. When he, when he echoes that, he thinks about something. He thinks about the nature of Jesus as light. The way John opens his gospel, by echoing Genesis 1, and by stressing the living words nature as light and life, suggests John saw the divine Son as the light that sustains creation. The sun becomes merely an agent that is unnecessary when God says it's unnecessary. Or in order to show us when we're reading the word that it's unnecessary, that it is not supreme, I can have day and I can have night, Israel, without the sun. So don't worship it. It is secondary, it is man, it is created, not man-made. It is created and secondary. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. That is the word. All things were made through this Word. Without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life was what? Light. The light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. I think John is meditating on Genesis 1 and giving us some clarity about how there could have been day and night without the sun. Not only that... Look at Paul. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts and given us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. Once again, thinking about creation when light came out of darkness and he identifies it with Jesus. And the word was there. We know it. The word was there. It was an emanating force. And I think potentially, well, Not only is God portrayed as the sustainer, this may be why light is never made. Because one of the chief images of God, and I would propose perhaps not a metaphor. Light is heat. Light is energy. And we need both in order to to keep life going. Is this something that was... is, is, Is heat and energy something that was not part of eternity past? All life is bound up in our God. So this may be why God does not ever say... God said, let there be light, and He made light. As I said, it's the only one of the eight acts of God that it doesn't say God made it. It just was. All of a sudden, into space and time is light. Into our sphere, um, dimension, is light. But it is who God is from eternity past. And he is the one who is upholding days one through three without, medi- without mediation is my proposal. And meditation on the text suggests we may have support. Now, that raises the next question. Okay. Um, so. so to have a week that includes 24-hour final four days but not 24-hour first three days... So the pattern is is simply Israel. You keep a six plus one pattern because I kept a six plus one pattern. They understand what a six plus one pattern is. They get it from how God revealed himself in the beginning. And so the natural reading is there's evening and there's morning. We understand how that works. We understand it on a 24-hour calendar. We understand a work week where you work Six days and then you're off for one, and so um, the implication and it's only an implication i'll give you that is that there is a the way the argument that's being made is not that the sun was on day one. The text doesn't say that it actually says it was only on day four, but the text is saying it was a week and there was evening and there was morning and Days four through seven carry on the pattern of light and darkness that was begun in day one. In fact, now the sun and the moon and the stars are the instruments that will govern this separation and distinction, but it was already happening according to the text for the first three days. So the the implication would be, in my mind, the burden of proof would be that it's not 24-hour days, but the burden of proof is not that there has to be a sun in the first three. Actually, the text says the opposite. But it implies that there is a pattern of 24-hour, that, that the days are such, even days one through three are, are such that just as God followed them, Israel can follow them. That would be my initial response. The question is reconciling a, what some would call an overwhelming scientific proposal for an old earth, with what I'm proposing is the more natural reading of the biblical text. And... um, I'm not running from this question. I'm saying, in two weeks from now, I'm going to touch on the science question. But that question does not have a response from Scripture. And right now, I'm focused on the biblical response to this question. And then I will touch on, um, because I believe that the science and the Bible should fully cohere because the word and the world are both given by our God special revelation, natural revelation, not in friction with one another. And and then, um, in the same way that, as you have said, there are um, ways to date, there's multiple ways to date the world. Some of them would suggest it's not old, but it is young. That we actually have dating methods that are in friction with one another. And, but I'm not the science guy. Um, so I can, I'll be able to present some things, but there are scientists in this room who can work on that side of the question. And so I'm coming down on the side of, um, I actually think the Bible is calling me to hold to something. And that's why I'm a convinced young earther but I have those kind of beliefs about baptism, and it doesn't make me call someone who, is a, who, who baptizes children. I don't use an H word with them. My dear brother that I teach with, John Beckman, doesn't think the, the Bible actually calls us to hold to a young earth or to 24-hour calendar days. And therefore, he's able to say, I think the scientific data actually points in this way and and informs my understanding of age. And I'm not going to downplay the possibility that science is going to give us clarity on age, but I also know that even young earth science has gotten much better in the last 15 years, different than the young earth science that I grew up with that had more challenges with it, and the young earthers even admit. But The question, what is at risk? Um, well, last week we said inerrancy is not at risk, where we come down on this question. Inerrancy is not at risk, believing that the Bible has no errors. You're also not at risk necessarily of not being able to be a leader at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Because we have old earth creationists and young earth creationists, and the elder affirmation simply requires a creative God who creates everything, a historical Adam and Eve created out of the dust. So it, didn't, it, it says you cannot be a leader here if you hold to an evolution of man. But beyond that, it does not specify. And... Um, I, but it also doesn't, it doesn't specify what what it means if you don't hold to this. It, it doesn't, it doesn't explicitly denounce things. The elder affirmation doesn't do that. It simply says, here's who we are, here's where we stand. Um, But it's the engagement that we have with people like Tim Keller that would suggest to me that Bethlehem does not view an evolutionary, a conviction in the evolution of man as generally doesn't view it as a heretical thing. That could, if you hold to that, you're not a Christian. That, so, what's at stake is just is trying to get the word right. Being convinced as a as a parent how we're going to shepherd our kids how we're going to think about the science that is coming our way, that is filled with presuppositions, usually of naturalism, and not even the possibility of atheism. And we would put at the top tier of our theological triage, top tier importance, God is creator. And if you don't hold to that, you can't be a Christian. and that Jesus comes as the last Adam to overcome the problems of the historical first Adam. If you don't hold to that, you can't get the gospel right. But what we're dealing with here is not only a secondary, but I believe even a third-level issue like the millennium. That... that. Um, that is low on the level of importance, but we're giving it four weeks because of the complicated nature of the topic. But there are certain things that we have to affirm, and then most of what we're talking about is, it's okay, John, for you to wrestle, or for Steve to wrestle and say, but how how does this line up? And if the science, what we want is to say, Scripture is our highest authority. Science does not win. Science can say nothing to trump my understanding of Scripture, but science can force me to go back to the text and say, have I read it the right way? And that is very fair. And if you can, in good conscience, say, I think Scripture is actually teaching this, and you can build a solid case, then there is a a freedom for holding to a different view of creationism than I'm proposing. I'm simply trying to give my understanding of how, how I, what, what's made me um, the guy that I am. Now, a question was raised. Let me just answer this question. Couldn't day just mean an indefinite period of time? Look at Genesis 2-4 with me. We're going to end right here. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Now, either this means, as was being proposed before, God made the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1, 1. That was one day, and then all the rest is other days. Or, as I'm more, much more prone to see, you have here day being used as an indefinite time marker, like the day of the Lord. It doesn't have to mean one 24-hour period. It can mean a period, a general, broad period. That's the day. In the day that God made the world, that's one week. In the day when He made it, that's, that's how I'm understanding Verse 4. But notice, even the ESV put a heading marker in front of verse 4. Here's the three ways that yom, the Hebrew word for day, is used throughout the Bible. It's used for daylight, like we see in 1-5, where he distinguishes the light. He called the light day and the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning, the first day. Now, right there in that verse, you see day being used in two different ways. Day for day. When the light is happening versus night or day for the entire 24-hour solar experience. Sounds like a, a ride at some, you know, big event, amusement park. The solar experience. <laughs> um, and then an indefinite period. But what I want you to note is this. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3 is the introduction to this book. After this, there are ten headings that include these are the generations of, these are the generations of, these are the generations of, and they all point forward. Genesis 2-4 is looking back on what was and using day in a way that we don't find at all in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3. Rather, what we find in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is evening and morning, and that doesn't fit for a thousand-year period or more million year period i don't think the day age theory fits the text for example well you're you're i think you're to say there's evening and there is morning i th- i find it much more compelling to recognize this is talking about a week with evening and morning that's how we're understand daytime uh, the day there's day and night and the two together make up day Day one, day two, day three. Now, it's possible that you could have a, see if you can track with me, literal days within a figurative week. That is, when you look at all the literary artistry that's part of this chapter, days one through, through three, corresponding with days four through five, isn't it possible that even though it's presenting it as a week, that actually it's, the goal is not to give us chronological sequencing, it's to give us a message, about who God is and who we are in, God in this world, and that then I step back and I say, we can read the science into that because this is a literary framework over top of what actually happened, not denying what actually happened, but the goal is not at all to tell us chronology. Many people hold to that, but I don't think you, and I, I have another slide that says why I don't think that we can go that far, but the... My point is that I don't think we can read day as an indefinite period of time in Genesis 1 because there is the week and there is evening and there is morning. And this indefinite use doesn't show up in the introduction anywhere. The other two, yes, not this one. And so because of that, I don't think we have the freedom to to try to make day fit in a a way that it's not being called to be used in Genesis 1. The possibility that the whole week is a literary creation? That's a different question, and I have a response to that. But um, that's a different issue. What I am saying is I don't think we're free to let yom, day, mean something other than daylight or 24-hour period in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. It just doesn't fit. Alex? Ah, that's a great question. Because Spurgeon said morning and evening, and and God (laughs) says the other way around. So, whether the evening started at 6 p.m. or whether the evening started at um, 12 p.m., there is a message being given here. And that is that light always overcomes the darkness. And the end of God's day is not night, it's it's light. There is a message of hope that morning always overcomes evening. Morning always overcomes evening. That's the pattern that we're supposed to think about life, not the other way around. The end of the day is not night, the end of the day is light. And here we are living in the dawn, the darkness is passing. The light, true light is shining, and living in the dawn, if all that we had was this, we could get highly discouraged, because the shadows are still lingering, and it could feel like lingering night. Is this it? Is this all that I have? But the message of Scripture is that, take comfort. Morning has dawned, but it's not yet noon. But noon is coming. So there's a pattern being set. There is evening and there was morning, day one. I think that it's theologically significant and I think that God's calling us to think about His structure in a certain way where light always overcomes darkness. Father, I thank You for this day. I didn't think we'd get through a lot and we didn't, but we got through some. Some questions were answered and I pray for greater clarity. I pray even more for enhanced affections. Help us just rest in you as our creator, knowing that you've got our back, that Jesus has risen, that light has dawned, that mercies are fresh, and that noon is coming. In your name we pray. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.